Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations wrapped up in books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. We've got a non-fiction special for you today. Our featured guest is Malcolm Gaskell, talking about his book, The Ruin of Witches, Life and Death in the New World. We'll also hear from Diane Coyle on her book, Cogs and Monsters, What Economics Is and What It Should Be. And Jonathan Drury will be chatting about Around the World in 80 Plants. Malcolm, we'll give you a proper introduction in just a moment, but first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Uh, thank you very much, Lee. And non-fiction, as I say, that's going to be what we're talking about today. And you're a historian. This is a history book you've written. Was it always going to be history for you? I think it was. There was a time when I thought perhaps um, English literature, but I wasn't very numerate and uh, struggled with sciences and so on. But I think that, you know, like a lot of kids who uh, grow up to be historians or have a, an adult love of history. It starts when you're very young and you go to castles and so on. And I think if your imagination is captured at that point, then you can be kind of set on a path, I certainly was. Yes. What is it about history that intrigues you? There's a certain degree of escapism. I think even, even professional historians would admit that they have to kind of lose themselves in their subjects a bit. Because, of course, you know, the past and history are separate things that you know really that history is about our engagement with the past in the present so it is all it is about us as much as it's about them children you know, from a very young age can engage with that idea and you know some of us just don't really grow up in that regard and you just you just stay kind of romantically involved with this subject of the past or this kind of dialogue that goes on between past and present. And you are early modern history, that's the area that you specialise in, which is what kind of period? It's kind of 16th, 17th centuries, really. Kind of go between kind of 1500 and 1800, or some people would call it Tudors and Stuarts from an English point of view, but essentially 16th, 17th centuries is what I'm about. And why that particular time period? I don't know, really. I kind of grew up really being interested in the 20th century, and it was mostly what I'd studied at school. But when I went to university, I just, you know, I think it's quite, it's, it's, there's an argument in university courses for being forced to do things that you wouldn't naturally do, because sometimes you, you just get into a different period that you wouldn't have done naturally, and that's certainly what happened to me. And we're going to hear your first choice of music as well in a moment. Is music important to you? It sort of comes and goes. I mean, it is. I mean, I, I think that, you know, it would be strange if I said no. It would stress that I was just... Uh, some people whole, have. individual. <laughs> but I think I have sort of bursts of it. And I think it, it does, you know, especially as a historian, it does remind me of my own past. It reminds me of periods of time when, you know, for which I'm sort of slightly nostalgic a lot of the time. So, yeah, I think it is. And what about this one then? Strawberry Fields Forever by the Beatles. What does this remind you of? I'm a bit of a Beatles nut. So the Beatles mean a lot to me. And this particularly means a lot to me because it's from 1967, which was the year that I was born. So I always feel as if this song and, and me, we're the same age. It's a song that reminds me of actually when I was quite young, when I was about 10, when I used to do a paper round. And it was often quite grim in early dark mornings. And I can remember singing this in my head as I went round in my paper round. So I do often think of that time and place when I hear this song. Let me take you down, cause I'm going to strawberry fields. 
that was Strawberry Fields Forever by the Beatles, the first choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Malcolm Gaskell. Malcolm's first book, Witchfinders, a 17th century English tragedy about witch trials in England, came out in 2006. The Daily Telegraph called it a wonderfully detailed, well-written and judicious account of a tragic yet fascinating episode in our social and religious history. Witchcraft, a very short introduction, was published in 2010, followed four years later by Between Two Worlds, How the English Became Americans, about the Western colonisation of America. The Ruin of All Witches, Life and Death in the New World, came out late last year. It tells the dark, real-life folk tale of witch hunting in a remote Massachusetts plantation in the middle of the 17th century. It was the Times, Sunday Times and BBC History Book of the Year with The Economist calling it a timeless study of how paranoia, superstition and social unrest fuel fantasies. Well, I enjoyed it very much too, Malcolm, a real page turner and uh, proof if we needed it. Truth is stranger than fiction. But listening to your list of publications there, it seems to me that this book brought together two of your main interests, really, the colonisation of America and witchcraft. Yeah, it did. It was sort of quite late in the day. I started thinking rather grandly there was a kind of trilogy, although, of course, that was never part of the design. But it's certainly the case that, you know, having done this East Anglian witch hunt uh, in the middle of the 1640s and then doing this broad sweep of 17th century English America, that it did make sense for them to cross over. And of course, they do intersect perfectly in the story of Springfield, which is the right kind of time, mid 17th century, with some of the same kinds of themes about paranoia and about fear, really, I suppose. And that's the common denominator of both those stories. And this is a real life story. When did you first come across it? You know, as a historian of witchcraft, it had always been there in the background. Sometimes you have these stories, they're part of a sort of back repertoire of tales that you have. But you, you know, you tend to summarise them very quickly or refer to them, skip over them. But this is a story that actually has an awful lot of detail to it. There's some very good sources. And so I just started to think that really that this could be expanded uh, and that maybe we could go quite deeply. And we should say what the story is. Yeah, so Springfield is is a very strange place. So New England is founded in the uh, as an English colony in the 17th century, and then lots of little plantations and townships spring up in the coming decades. Now Springfield is right on the western frontier of Massachusetts, the western frontier of New England, indeed, the top of the Connecticut Valley. It's a very kind of remote place, and it's positioned there by its founder William Pynchon because Pynchon really wants to get the beaver fur at source from Native Americans to ship back to England. He's a he's a godly man, but he's also a very astute entrepreneur. So that he attracts all sorts of people to go and live there, but they live this, well, sequestered life, I suppose. They're not completely cut off, but they're, they're afraid of all sorts of things outside them, the, the frontier, the Native Americans, wild animals, natural disasters, all these things. But actually the thing that is most dangerous to them is one another because they are kind of bottled up there. And really it's their toxic emotions, I suppose, that make this story what it is. And how they turn on a married couple within the community and accuse them both of witchcraft. They do. I mean, the broader context, I suppose, of Springfield across the 17th century is that everyone's turning on each other all the time because they are envious for authority and they're envious for land and various economic opportunities. And so this married couple, Hugh and Mary Parsons, are really at the eye of the storm. They're not exactly scapegoats because they're not randomly accused. They are really rather responsible in some ways for the negative views that people have of them. 
But at the same time, they are also a projection of some of the failings and insecurities of their, of their own neighbours. And this is at a time when witchcraft was very much believed to be a fact, where the lines between supernatural and natural were, I think, as you say in the book, blurred. Yeah, it is, absolutely. It's a commonplace in the same way that it's a commonplace that God is the creator and God's providence intervenes in daily life. So that on the other side, the devil could do the same. Now, the devil doesn't have the same power as God in this, but maybe that God will allow the devil to tempt people who are spiritually weak, whose faith is failing, or whose emotions of greed and so on get the better of them. So that this sort of porosity between the supernatural world and the temporal world is very much part of daily life. That doesn't necessarily mean to say that people are blame everything on witchcraft and accuse people of witchcraft all the time, because the theory of witchcraft is a commonplace, but actually putting it into practice, that's to say, actually accusing somebody and finding the evidence for it is a much, much more difficult thing, much more difficult than I think a lot of people would assume. And you've written it in a particular way. So this is a non-fiction book, but there are moments where the writing strays into what might be called prose or fictional prose, very novelistic at times. That was obviously a conscious decision. Why did you choose to write it that way? Yeah, it, it, it was a conscious decision. I mean, first of all, I thought it was very important to write a narrative. It really got to have a beginning, middle and an end because I wanted to show the way that witchcraft accusations often unfolded over quite a long period of time. And they weren't just a knee-jerk reaction whenever anybody didn't like their neighbours or just couldn't explain something. What happens to Hugh and Mary Parsons in Springfield really festers over quite a long period of time. And I think that's quite important for understanding, often that sort of the the hesitance of, of a lot of people to come forward. This is a story that gathers momentum. But I think it was also important to turn this into a, a kind of evocative, uh, you know, I suppose a bit like Witchfinders, and one, one review referred to it as, a, as an evocative travelogue, I think, which I think was a compliment. Uh, you know, I wanted to kind of place people there. I wanted to immerse readers in this slightly familiar world in some ways, but also a very alien world as well. You know, and I also thought of it as a from early on as a kind of real life fairy tale or folk tale. Now, Tolkien once said that um, fairy tales had to be set in an enchanted realm. It didn't work unless you're an enchanted realm. Well, Springfield is very good for that because even as a non-fiction book, this is an enchanted world. This is a world where there is a reality attached to devils and witches and all the emotions that make these things happen. So I felt it really rather suited that brief. So telling it not just as fiction, but almost as a, as a fairy story was actually very much part of the design. Did it feel uncomfortable at all? Because obviously as a story and you're, you base a lot of what you say on empirical evidence and you, you do go into the head of some of these characters. So she mm -hmm. thought this and the day looked like that. Things that I'm assuming you couldn't know from historical evidence. You, you're taking that leap of faith. Well, to be perfectly honest, I really tried to stick to the record as much as I possibly could. And some of those things which come from the inner life aren't invention. To the degree that the book has invention in it, they are things which are taken from parallel sources where similar things happen. And Natalie Zeman Davis, who wrote a, a very good story called The Return of Martin Guerre, which was a true story based on the archives. But she said in that that there was invention in it, but that it was held tightly in check by the voices of the past. And I was kind of inspired by that because I think this is it. I don't make this stuff up in the way that I would as a novelist. 
the central source that we have of this actually tells you an awful lot about what people said they were thinking and feeling. So as soon as somebody says, I really felt lonely or whatever, that goes down because that's somebody actually telling you across three and a half centuries how they did feel and think. All history should be imaginative, but really the, one of the great thing about the sources in this is that you can connect much better to that those inner lives with relatively little imagination because the people record how they felt. Yes, what were the central sources for this? There are a number of really good documentary sources for this, but the main one, which is in the New York Public Library, is William Pynchon, the founder of the colony, who was also the, the chief magistrate. It's his little book of deposition, so the book of witness statements. is the record of all his investigations prior to this going to trial. It's an in- enormously rich source not just for the course of the witchcraft accusations, but just for daily life. You can read against the grain, as historians sometimes say. That means using the source for purposes other than that the author of the source intended. They can tell an awful lot about what people thought and felt and so on, their mentalities, their mental world. But there are other really good sources. We've got a very good map of where everybody lived. It was reconstructed Um, I think, at the end of the 19th century, but it's absolutely crucial for this spatial sense of where, who lived next door to whom and so on. You know, neighbours from hell. It helps to see that actually these people live next door to each other. And there are also very good records of births, deaths and marriages. So we can see constantly the, um, you know, year on year, the high mortality of children, but also the very high birth rate as well. All those things are very useful to come together to try to, reconstruct something of this lost world. And we're going to hear from Diane Coyle in just a moment about economics, but the economy of Springfield as well. This is a new time trying to establish itself, as you say, with a capitalist at the head of it. William Pynchon, you mentioned there, very much in control. Yeah, very much so. So William Pynchon makes everything possible in Springfield. So that these migrants who've come from England, quite a few from Wales as well. Mary Parsons is, is Welsh. You know, they haven't gone to the New World for new religious opportunities. Most of them haven't. They've gone there because the economic opportunity in the old world are extremely limited. So that to be able to go to this colony, this plantation, and be given a house and be given credit to store and have land and be able to get married and have children, these are all opportunities that are denied them in the old world at this time because, well, there's land in America and in England, England is overpopulated. Pynchon makes it happen. But at the same time, Pynchon controls everything. And he does create a state of dependence on his colonists that I think rather chafes and makes them rather resentful. I think they're all kind of capitalists, really. I mean, they don't call themselves capitalists, but they're very conflicted people. People in all sorts of colonies in New England don't find there an obvious contradiction between being a capitalist and a Christian. They sometimes said that, you know, profit and religion jump together in the colonies. That was a phrase that was used. But at the same time, that if you become a greedy capitalist, and one might argue that all capitalists are, you know, the, the, the key capitalist emotion is greed, that it's not long before you start to compromise some of your Christian ideals. And if you are living in imitation of Christ's life, then one departs from that quite quickly. You know, at the moment, one starts envying one's neighbor's land and plotting against them and so on. So there is that conflict in their in their lives, I think. Some of the, the uh, hostility towards Hugh Parsons, I think, is a projection of some of those uncomfortable feelings that people are only too aware of in themselves. 
Thank you, Malcolm. We'll come back to you in just a moment. Thank you for that. Let's hear now from Diane Coyle. Diane is an economist and former advisor to the UK Treasury. Since March 2018, she's been the Bennett Professor of Public Policy at the University of Cambridge. Cogs and Monsters, What Economics Is and What It Should Be, came out late last year. It discusses the challenges facing economics as it changes to keep pace with the digital economy. The Financial Times named it as the best economics book of the year. And when I spoke to Diane, I asked her to explain the title to me, Cogs and Monsters. Cogs are us. Cogs, we're cogs in the machine. And this is a reflection on the way economists have often thought about how do decisions get made. They see people as individuals doing their own thing, trying to get the most income or the most profit, whatever it is, operating as individuals, but not interacting with each other or influencing each other. And the monsters are what's happening to the economy now, which makes thinking of us as cogs not the way to do economics anymore. Because if you think about things like social networks, digital platforms, the environmental crises, you can't think of people as individuals. We are influencing each other constantly. It's all very unpredictable. And so it's like those old medieval maps where it used to say, here be monsters, because people didn't really know what was out there. And this book focuses on digital technology and how that's affecting not just economies, but the study of economies as well, how it's affecting economics. That's right. It's the area that I've been researching for a long time now, but it's obviously taken over our lives. And if you think about the launch of smartphones in 2007, not really all that long ago, and 3G and 4G networks and all of the apps that we use all the time now. So it's transformed our lives and it's transformed business. And it's starting to transform how we have to think about the economy. So for example, what should we be doing about the power that companies like Google or Facebook have? And also the tools of economics. So the kinds of empirical work that we do using very big data sets, that's starting to change as well. So it's how we do it, but also the substance, the content of what we should be thinking about when we're doing economics. And is it partly harder because this is an invisible product, as it were, the use of social media? You know, you can measure how many cans of baked beans are sold and perhaps the demand for baked beans. But social media, because it's something we can't pin down and touch, does that make it harder? It's all very intangible, isn't it? Think about a company on the stock market a lot of the value of its share price will reflect intangible things that accountants often label goodwill. And that can evaporate overnight. So it's not only hard to measure, but it's also much more volatile. And trying to get your heads around how to measure this, are things getting better? It's much trickier than in the production line economy that we used to have in the 50s and 60s. So how do you measure it? It's um, difficult because a lot of the data that's needed is held by companies and they're not asked to provide it in the way that companies are asked to provide their revenue figures or their employment figures to the statisticians. So even something like how much data is there, we don't know what the volumes are in and out of data centers or crossing borders. And so much of how valuable they are depends on how people use it as well. So it's much more varied, much more individual than it used to be. Part of my research is thinking about what are the techniques for understanding what the value is and what's the potential. So it's, as you're saying, just all much less solid to get your hands around. And it's a big question, but can you say what the biggest impact of digital technology has been on economies? I don't think there's a single biggest impact. I think there are lots of big impacts that are countervailing. They pull against each other. 
there have been some fantastic positives. People really value these technologies. Think about the way it's enabled us to stay in touch with people over the past 18 months or two years. And they've brought us so much more convenience and entertainment. So that's all very positive. On the other hand, we see fake news on social media, misinformation, incredible power in the hands of a small number of people. And it's quite hard to make that trade-off. So a lot of policy at the moment is about trying to reduce those negatives while capturing the benefit of all the positives. And something like fake news, how would that affect economies? How would that affect you in your study of economies and economics? How do you factor something like that in? It does affect things and it's through changing people's beliefs and expectations and that affects their behaviour. So, for example, we've seen that people believe vaccine misinformation online and that's stopping people getting vaccinated and that's having a real impact on people's lives, personal impact, but it's also an economic impact because people who've got long COVID are less able to work, people who are sick are out of the workforce. So there's an economic aspect to that too, although it's less important. Expectations, beliefs are really important in shaping investment. Where do you decide to go to university if you're going at all? Where are you going to buy your house? Expectations are fundamental. And so fake news or misinformation is really at the heart of it. And when did you decide to write this book? What drew you to this subject and when? Oh, gosh, I can't stop myself writing books. I've, <laughs> my first one came out 25 years ago, also about digital technologies. And um, I suppose it's part of the job description. But I really wanted people to focus on what's good about economics and what I think needs to change about it. There are lots of very good things about it. And some of the criticisms people make of economists are just a bit daft. But I think it does need to change. And so this is all about how I think it really needs to change to keep up with the 21st century. So 25 years ago, you wrote a book about digital technology. And what are the biggest changes since then? I mean, presumably it's the growth of it, is it? Or are there other things? The way that it's become so absolutely pervasive, it's everywhere. We're always online, all of us. And the effects haven't been one for one. So it started out really small and you could see some things changing the fact that people were concentrating more in cities, for example. But then it all seemed to accelerate. Although I spotted some of the trends 25 years ago, what's taken me by surprise is just how transformational it's been, really. And are you optimistic? I mean, do economists think in those terms? (laughs) Am I optimistic? I vary. This is a moment when we could see things change the better because we've all been through a dreadful experience and we know that all kinds of big, important things are going on in the world. On the other hand, you could get pessimistic because if we can't step up to the plate at the moment, then when are we going to be able to change things? And if you were to write a book 25 years from now, which you may do by the sound of it because you can't stop (laughs) yourself, (laughs) uh, what do you think you'd be writing about? I think things will have changed a lot. So it's really hard to make that sort of prediction. If you think about the new technologies that have come along in the past 25 years and the medical innovations, the fact that those vaccines could be invented so quickly, personalised genomic medicines, all the new materials we have now, the potential for clean energy. So they could be the kind of changes in the way we live that we saw at the start of the 20th century when we got indoor plumbing and electricity. So it could be really big changes like that. And at the same time, we're going to have more extreme weather events, so we've got to cope with that possible tipping points in biodiversity. So I think it'll be a very different world. I'm not confident that I can say now what there will be to write about in another 25 years' time. Closer to home, what are you writing next? What's next for you? I'm probably going to do an academic tome next about how do you measure the economy. There's a lot of detailed work I've been doing about constructing 
price indices that make up inflation measurement and, and so on. So that's next on the agenda. Then I might write about my own experience coming from a working class town in Lancashire, Cotton Town, aunties and uncles who worked in the mills and the journey to get to here, reflecting on the changes over those many decades since I was a lass in a Lancashire mill town. <laughs> and this book, Cogs and Monsters, who's this aimed at? Both economists and general people who are interested in what's going on in the world. Because economics is very influential, there are lots of economists in government and regulatory bodies and the city, so the subject has a big influence on our lives. And I think plenty of people are just quite interested to understand what's going on, so I hope some of them will pick it up and read it too. So you're keen to make it accessible, so it's there's less jargon than there might be in a textbook, that kind of thing. I can't promise it's completely free of jargon, but I've done my best. And Cogs and Monsters, What Economics Is and What It Should Be by Diane Coyle is published by Princeton University Press. We're talking on Bookmark today to Malcolm Gaskell about his book, The Ruin of All Witches. Uh, Malcolm, Diane, they're talking about communications and obviously there's no digital technology in the time of Springfield in the middle of the 17th century. It was very much word of mouth, but it could be very damning indeed. Yeah, it could. It's, it's very strange, really, that the problems I suppose we have in the digital age and the problems they have in Springfield are in some ways the opposite. So in Springfield, all they have is rumour, you know, news travels very slowly towards them, they hear it in fragments and so on. We, of course, have loads and loads of information, but the, it's a question of how that makes you feel. I think there's an emotional basis to this. And that to some extent, with our digital information overload, that we are not necessarily more sure of ourselves. Uh, and one of the things that Diane points to is this sense that we're no longer, you, you know, you're sort of no longer individuals, that we're all kind of connected up now through this technology. But, you know, does that necessarily make us feel more confident, powerful, sure of what's true? And I think that both too much information, and too little information can erode our confidence in what we should and shouldn't believe. There's a great quote here from, it's always attributed to G.K. Chesterton, but it almost certainly wasn't him. And he said, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. And of course, the people at Springfield do believe in God, but there's also this sense that they believe in lots of other things too, and they're not sure of themselves. And so actually, when there are accusations of witchcraft swimming about in the air, at this moment in time, they are more inclined to believe it, I think than maybe at other points in time. There's something about this moment. It isn't that this which could have happened at any time. There's a moment in particular of fear and uncertainty. And really, you know, what's happened to us in the last two years, we found ourselves in many respects in similar situations, not knowing quite what to believe, not knowing quite what to do, and also seeing what many people feel are totally groundless, unempirical conspiracy theories getting such a hold. And that's still something of a puzzle. Yes, the particular Sorry. time that you're writing about, there was a lot going on in old England, as it called, very much a time of transition, uh, moving from a monarchy to the Republic. And the echoes of that, the ripples of that are being felt all the way across the Atlantic, destabilising slightly. Very much so. So this is a, so that the the, um, the trial and execution of Charles I in January 1649 can be seen as a, as a crisis of patriarchy. Patriarchy is a principle of government. It isn't just men being in charge of things, although obviously it is that too. It's an idea where that all power filters down from the king right down to ordinary householders. Well, if you execute the king, you know, you're really, you know, you're rocking the pillars 
which normally would keep society stable. And so some of this does echo over into the colonies. And what's happening in Springfield also is that William Pynchon, this um, not not just supreme landowner magistrate, he's supreme patriarch. Well, Pynchon has these very strange ideas which are classed as heretical. I mean, to us, they wouldn't necessarily seem sort of earth-shattering. I won't go into the detail of his theological eccentricities, but that for the authority of the Boston government, where there is a very clear uh, line of religious orthodoxy, what he's saying is really, really explosive. And that I think that this does rock his patriarchal authority and means actually he's not actually got long left in Springfield and he does in the end return, or not before too long, return to England. So yeah, so a crisis of patriarchy, but also a crisis of authority, people don't quite know what to believe that definitely does have an influence on which beliefs in Springfield at this time. Well, let's hear your second choice of music now, Malcolm, which is River by Joni Mitchell. Why this one? This comes from an incredible album, Blue. I mean, you can just listen to the thing all the way through, not skip a track, don't put it on shuffle. It's just (laughs) a beautiful album from beginning to end from 1971. But this very much takes me back to October 1986 when I started at Robinson College in Cambridge, and my sister gave me what now seems incredibly quaint, a mixtape. This had Joni Mitchell's blue on it. You know, I'd just started in Cambridge and I would, you know, I hadn't come from a, a background where anybody had been to Cambridge or university. So for me, Cambridge was an absolutely magical place. And uh, I used to cycle off to lectures on frosty mornings. And this was the song that I would most have in my head. It's a very wintry, frosty song. That memory and this song are fused together in my mind. It's coming on. Christmas, they're cutting down trees, they're putting up reindeer and singing songs of joy and peace. Oh, I wish I had a river I could skate away on. But it don't snow here, it stays pretty green. I'm gonna make a lot of money, then I'm gonna quit this crazy scene. I wish I had a river. I could skate away on I wish I had a river so long I would teach my feet to
wish I had a river I could skate away I had a river I could skate away on Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio With Heifer's Bookshop The great Cambridge bookseller since 1876 And our feature guest on Bookmark today is Malcolm Gaskell talking about his book, The Ruin of All Witches. Malcolm, one of the most notable things about your book is that you present the evidence without any explanation. So there's no explanation or suggestion that this might be down to mass hysteria or this illness that is imputed to witchcraft could from the symptoms be this or the reason the milk changed colour might be this. You don't do that. You just present it as it is. Yeah, that's right. So that was a a very deliberate choice. I suppose in some ways, feeling the need to explain everything is a sort of slightly academic approach. And I did want to make this real life story live as a story. I didn't want to keep interrupting it. I wanted to sort of vanish um, as the author, you know, in the presence of the subjects. And I think it's very important to preserve the categories and the way that people understood these at the time. So that, you know, I'm assuming that most listeners will not believe in witchcraft in the sense that using the devil's power in order to cause harm, although, of course, obviously there is a, a modern religion of Wicca, but it's not really about that. But that this idea of causing harm with witchcraft is something that is very real at the time. So there's no real need for me to say, I think, what it really was, because what you're doing then is not actually explaining so much as explaining away. And if you explain things away, they they vanish and we don't really understand anything. What I wanted to do was demonstrate how they thought about things as a way of understanding it. Whereas actually, ironically, too much explanation destroys that alien world. And all you really do is go back to rather kind of 19th century ideas about witchcraft, which is saying, weren't they silly? And aren't we great? Because we're on the other side of the Enlightenment. Yes, it does It does put the reader in the position of being one of the villagers. The notable thing about all the claims that are made about human marriage, nobody ever sees them doing anything. They feel effects of something which they accuse them of. And that's right. And that's, and that's why emotions are so important to the book. A lot of historians now work on the history of emotions. It's a whole kind of growing subfield. Again, I don't go on about the history of emotions in capital letters, but my reading of the history of emotions does inform the whole thing, which is a kind of sensitivity, I suppose, to the way that people make real situations out of feelings. As you say, you and Mary, like most accused witches, aren't actually caught in flagranti doing anything, stirring a cauldron or flying on a broomstick or something. But they do make people feel a certain way, and they make people feel very powerful emotions, especially, I think, when children are involved. 
I think whenever I've taught about this, if you start saying, well, you know, witches make you feel a certain way, people aren't, don't start to get it. But anyone who's had children, if you say this is the sort of intangible feeling that someone's trying to kill your children, there's a flicker of rec modern recognition about the kind of emotions that somebody might have felt at the time and the severity with which they might have acted upon them. And it seems a perfect storm that they are the ones chosen. They are the ones picked on because Mary, it appears, might have mental health problems. Yeah, yeah. Hugh is brash and a bit abrasive with yeah, people yeah. and actually quite a powerful person in the world of commerce as well. Well, he is because, you know, having said that everyone depends upon William Pinch and actually because Hugh Parsons, as should have said earlier, is he's the town brickmaker. Now, anybody who wants to get ahead in, uh, in Springfield, where the houses are built of wood, wants bricks because they want to build brick chimneys. So brick chimneys in Springfield aren't just chimneys that don't catch fire, although that's important. Brick chimneys are a status symbol. So they're dependent on Hugh Parsons, but he's actually horrible. And all his brick deals end up with some kind of rancor. He is abrasive for sure, but he threatens people in a sinister way. He doesn't say, I'm going to come around and burn your house. And he says, I'll get even with you. And so I think that there's that nagging fear that maybe if he is using witchcraft, that it will come at some point in the future. And I think that does make people intensely neurotic about the threat of witchcraft in general and about Hugh Parsons specifically. So there is a degree, I think, to which people in Springfield do pick on Hugh and Mary, but there's also, you know, they, they don't do themselves any favours. Sure, I think Mary is disturbed, possibly even psychotic, but the, the effect of what she does is to go around, she talks about witches a lot. Now, again, we might think that that's normal in the 17th century. Well, people are always talking about witches. Seems like they're not. And that someone who has an excessive fear of witches is somebody who makes their neighbours feel very uncomfortable, possibly makes them feel that maybe the person that goes on about witches might be the witch themselves. This is smouldering for a long time before it bursts into flames. Thank you, Malcolm. Well, uh, let's, let's look outwards now uh, from Springfield and hear from Jonathan Drury. Professor Jonathan Drury is the author of the best-selling Around the World in 80 Trees, which was an evening standard book of the year and among the Times Gardening Books of the Year. His follow-up book, Around the World in 80 Plants, came out last year. The Times called it beautiful to behold and read, and the Daily Mail described it as one of the most quietly beautiful books of the year. I spoke to Jonathan shortly after he'd heard that the book had also been shortlisted for the Waterstones Book of the Year Award, but I started by asking him about his connections to Cambridge. So I've always loved Cambridge as a city. I mean, who wouldn't? But um, when my son went to university there a few years ago, I decided that I wanted to try and sort of have more activities there so I wouldn't have to, like that sort of anxious parent, try and arrange lunches and things weeks in advance, but be able to um, just turn up and say, oh, I happen to be there tomorrow. So I'm on the board of the um, Cambridge University Botanic Garden, which I think is a wonderful place, and Raspberry Pi Foundation, which uh, makes all those computers and gets young people programming all over the world. And also the Cambridge Science Centre, which is that wonderful thing near the station where people can visit and do hands-on science with their kids. Oh, good to have you involved with uh, our city. And talking to you now about this book, Around the World in 80 Plants, which is a follow-up to Around the World in 80 Trees, which in itself was an immense task. So you obviously weren't put off by doing it one time around. <laughs> well, I was nearly put off because it's quite difficult. You know, if you could imagine picking... 80 trees out of about 60,000 species and finding new things to say about those. Then finding 80 plants to represent about 400,000 plants was even more difficult. 
what I tried to do was to pick stories where there would be an interesting angle, whether people knew something about science or history or culture or folklore, there'd be something new in each story. And obviously they all had to be from around the world as well and different kinds of plants. Were there specific criteria that you set for plants to make it into your top 80? Yes, there had to be some new element of the story so that everyone who read it, you know, would have a kind of aha moment. That was the main thing. And whether they came at it from a, a layperson's knowledge of, of science or history, culture or folklore, there'd be something new and interesting. And then I wanted to represent different plant families. So at one end of the scale was phytoplankton, the tiny little photosynthesizing plankton that live in the sea and are the basis of the whole marine food chain. And at the other end, huge trees that obviously live on land. And then the lovely flowering plants in between and seaweed. And of course, I needed to have a tour of the world. So they couldn't all be in England or all, in, all be in Europe. I needed to set them around the world. Because it is such a vast task. How do you start with this? I mean, do you get your plant dictionary out? Where, where do you begin? <laughs> well, I've been fortunate in having travelled quite a lot with work as a documentary filmmaker. And then I was on the board of the Royal Botanic Gardens at Kew. So I had a chance to see lots of plants around the world. And some of the stories that people told me, you know, once I checked them out and they were actually true, they stuck. And I remember my parents, when I was about five or six years old, they used to take my brother and me around Kew Gardens. And they got us interested in plants, partly by jollying us along with sweets and ice creams and things, but also by taking little pieces of the plants and feeding them to us, <laughs> a little, little tiny corner of the leaf, and then telling us a story about that particular plant. It was that combination of sort of science and beauty and stories that I think inspired me to do the book. And were your findings for this book vastly different to the previous one? I mean, the point I'm getting at is, are the ways that plants influence us very, very different from the way that trees do? Well, you know, trees are plants too. And it's just one of the things you might like is the scientific definition of a tree is a big plant with a woody stem. <laughs> uh, it's nothing more sophisticated than that. You know, so the kinds of stories are similar, you know, the amazing things that people get up to, the ridiculous lengths that human beings go to to find aphrodisiacs, for example, is not much different whether it's trees or plants or anything else. The uses that we make of plant life, not only for food, obviously, but for clothing, for textiles, for the drugs that we rely on as medicine and also to, you know, in some cultures to transport us. So all these facts you've got, can I put you on the spot now and hit me with your, your favourite three, your top three facts that you found? I particularly like the fact that bananas, when they're ripe enough, glow blue in ultraviolet no. light. So you should always take a banana to a nightclub. I like the <laughs> fact that tomatoes, when they were first brought over by the Spanish to Europe in, in about sort of 1510, 1520 or so, they were regarded with a lot of suspicion. In fact, they'd already caught on in Italy and, and Spain. But Gerard, who wrote the famous Herbal, he said that they're of rank and stinking savour, probably because they're related to um, deadly nightshade and, and that family. That set back tomato consumption in this country by about 200 years. And the other amazing thing about tomatoes is no bumblebees come along and latch themselves onto a flower and buzz, and that shakes off the pollen. But it's just been discovered that you can delay the ripening of green tomatoes six days or seven days or so by playing them several hours worth of a high-pitched tone. So would you believe it that you can play sounds to fruit and delay their ripening? Wow, that's amazing. And the other thing about this book is that you're in it too. You know, you've put yourself in it. Lots of people have commented on how much they've 
enjoyed your witty aside, I suppose, given what you just told me about how your parents interested you in plants, you couldn't leave yourself out, really. Yes. I mean, I remember when my um, dad gave me a lick of an opium poppy when I was about nine. It only made my tongue go slightly numb for a second, but the effect it had on my teacher was much more <laughs> spectacular. <laughs> I sent a social worker around to make sure I was all right. Plants are such incredible things that I wanted to um, tell stories in a way which people would latch onto. And I suppose when I wrote the tree book, I got a lot of compliments from people saying, you know, we really liked your idiosyncratic and wry style, as they put it. And I, I suppose I have tried to uh, put my own opinions in there. And it's beautifully illustrated. You've got illustrations from Lucille Clark. They're absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, Lucille has done a fantastic job. She's a um, very whimsical French artist living in London. They are just spectacular. And I think that what she's managed to do is to, you know, along with the designers, is to create a book where the text and the pictures are like siblings. You know, they're not in competition with each other. This is definitely not a sort of coffee table book. It's not a gardening book, but it would be of interest to anyone who's sort of interested in plants and history and science, I suppose. A lot of nature books now seem to straddle those two, or or even more than two genres, so they can be memoir as well as factual. Yes, and I've not used the first person other than in the the introduction, but I think that it is opinionated enough. I mean, I do get emails from all over the world, mostly complimentary, but occasionally saying, gosh, you do have strong opinions. (laughs) (laughs) You've been shortlisted for Waterstone's Book of the Year. You must be thrilled. Well, it's a bit of a shocker. I wasn't expecting that. And to be on the same list as Kazuo Ishiguro and Paul McCartney and Marcus Rashford and such an amazing bunch of people, I sort of wish that they were having a a shortlist party so that I could (laughs) go and uh, meet all these famous folk. But uh, thanks to COVID, I think that's not happening. But I I am sort of slightly um, embarrassed about being on the list, but very, very pleased, obviously. Well, I wonder if thanks to COVID, that's one of the reasons the book's been so successful in that people couldn't travel and couldn't see plants and trees from around the world, and yet they could in your book. That may be true, but the tree book came out before COVID, and that's been a bestseller. So I think there's something else going on, and I think it it might be this feeling of vicarious travel that you describe as something that people like even when they are able to travel, because we can travel back in time as well as throughout the world. And what's next for you, John? I wish I knew. Publishers are keen for me to do another book and I'm trying to work out what. It probably won't be another Around the World in 80, but I think it will be something opinionated. And Around the World in 80 Plants by Jonathan Drury is published by Lawrence King Publishing. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Malcolm Gaskell about his book The Ruin of All, which is published by Penguin Random House. Malcolm, the aspects of your book, is there anything that we can learn for today, do you think? Is there any similar situation today. I mean, there are lots of people being accused of things they haven't done, but is there anything we can take on the broader world canvas at the moment? Historians are often quite wary about, you know, about learning from history. But I do think that in this story, there is a lot of intolerance. And I suppose that that's one of the lessons for our time. I think that, you know, I've got kids and you know, you want to teach them to be kind and you want to teach them to be tolerant and try to understand other people's point of view. Now, in Springfield, people really don't try to understand other people's point of view. They are set on a selfish path. And maybe there's a degree in which that's human nature. Maybe it's just something about the parameters of a capitalist society. But we don't have to surrender to it. We can resist that and we can try to remain 
humane. And I do think that in a lot of 17th century witchcraft stories, when all the emotion has died down, there are humane voices that are heard that are sympathetic voices that we would actually find startlingly modern. And what's next for you, Malcolm? I see you've got a film agent. This would make a fantastic film. Well, we would hope so, Lee. Uh, (laughs) Nobody's been knocking at the door just yet, but uh, we'll we'll give it time. So, uh, yeah, well, I hope hope so. Um, And it would be nice. I think it's, again, I've sort of seen it as a horror story. I've said it's it's a fairy tale, but it is another level. It is a domestic drama. And it is actually about the failure of marriage. I think it's about a couple who are full of hope, who don't manage to live up to the expectations that others have of them or even their own expectations of themselves. And I think that any marriage that's ever failed, there's a feeling of disappointment. That certainly is an element of of this story too. We'll hope that it's going to be the next blockbuster. I certainly could see it on the screen. What are you writing at the moment? I'm sort of changing direction a little bit at the moment. I'm writing um, about my great uncle's wartime memoir that he wrote in hiding in northern Italy when he was a partisan, having escaped from prisoner of war camp. And he left this incredible memoir, 35,000 words of writing about the first escape from a prison camp. So again, having said right at the start that I was always interested in the 20th century, I'm kind of coming full circle. I'm kind of going back to the 20th century, going back to the Second World War. But I'm trying to write something about the way, not just about the Second World War, but about the way that a historian like me might engage personally with the subject matter to write a story. That sounds great. And a question that we ask all our guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? I'm reading a fantastic 900-page book by a historian called Halik Kuchansky called Resistance. It's just about the resistance movements across Europe, across the Second World War and about the the ambivalence that these resistance movements have politically. It's not clear-cut for them often because they're dealing with the political sensitivities of the countries in which they rise up. Good luck with that. Well, we'll come back to you in just a moment uh, for your last choice of music, Malcolm, but a heads up that our next show featured guest is Sarah Vaughan, talking about her new novel, Reputation, and about having her previous novel, Anatomy of a Scandal, adapted into a major Netflix series. We'll also hear from comedian Faye Bran, about her debut novel, Tinker Taylor, School Mum Spy. And Stephen Games will be chatting about editing Brian Verity's memoir, Why My Wife Had to Die. But we'll sign out now, Malcolm, with your last choice of music, which is the Jayhawks and Save It for a Rainy Day. This song reminds me of two people who are very special to me. One is my daughter, Kate. And this song reminds me very much of dancing with her when she was very, very small and spinning her around the room and feeling um, elated to have a, have this little baby. So I always think of that. So there's a lot of nostalgia. But it was a song that was given to me by my oldest school friend who sadly died last year, Tim Groves. And Tim had given me an awful lot of music. And, uh, and this was one of the songs that he gave me right at that time when Kate was born. And so I always think of Kate when I hear it. I also think of Tim. Pretty little head Cambridge 105 Radio.